Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. Our mission is to make disciples who are radically devoted to Christ, having both a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Scott Poling. I like things the way that I like things. I tend to be pretty selfish that way and me-focused. Um, and I can get pretty irritable if things aren't the way that I like. And amazingly, the older I get, sometimes the worse I get. And my guess is that you are similar to me. You like things the way that you like things, whether it's the temperature in a room or whether it's the way that your eggs are cooked or whether it's making sure you get lunch after this service. I'm amazed at how irritable we can get when we don't get what we want because we like things the way we like things. Uh, For instance, if, if you don't eat right away, you get what they term hangry, which is an adjective. It's the state of anger caused by a lack of food, hunger causing a negative change in the emotional state. And there's people traveling on spring break right now, and they're staying at hotels. And you know what? They don't like that pillow because it's too hard or it's too soft. And they don't like that duvet. I'm with them. I hate those duvets. Send them back to Europe. Give me a regular sheet and blanket. Because I like things the way that I like things. And, and you know, I don't want to wait at a restaurant. Neither do you. And, and you know what? Don't sit me at the table when I really wanted that booth. Because I like things the way that I like things. And oftentimes, one of the things that I don't like is me. The longer I live, the more I realize I need to be more like Jesus. And I need to act more like Jesus. And I want to be more like Jesus. I need to be more like Jesus. And I want to be less like me. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read these words, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So as we behold the glory of our Lord Jesus, we become more like our Lord Jesus. That means the more time I spend learning of Jesus, the more time I become like him. And the more time I spend looking at what he is like and listening to the words that he spoke, the more time I spend with Jesus, the more I become like Jesus. So what I want us to do this morning is I want to spend time with Jesus. And I want us to behold him. And I want us to behold his glory, and in so doing, may we become more like him. It's Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week, also known as Passion Week. And and Jesus enters into Jerusalem with, with much fanfare. Hundreds and thousands of people cheer his arrival. They, they're talking about him. They're adoring him. They're laying their coats down on the ground before him. And they're waving palm branches. And they're proclaiming, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And soon we know the praise will end. And soon the praise will turn into shouts of crucify him. Crucify him. And that's exactly what they'll do. 
after they strip him and beat him and spit on him and slap him and mock him and torture him and hang him on a cross between two thieves. Hands and feet hammered with spikes through flesh into wood. Crown of thorns mockingly crushed upon his head because he's the king. He's the king of the Jews. There is nothing fair about this and there is nothing right about this and there is everything wrong about this. He hangs there, verbally abused, physically tortured, in excruciating pain. And in this state, on the cross, our Lord will utter seven sayings. Seven things, seven sentences, statements that I need to hear and statements that you need to hear. May we behold the glory of our Lord this morning on the cross. And may we be transformed more and more like him because of the things we hear that come from his mouth. Not only do we behold the man, we behold the seven last things that our Lord says from the cross. So we go through, we will look at seven different passages. The passages will be on the screen. And I I just want us to humbly enter into the words of Jesus. Behold the man and behold what he says. Number one is this. Behold the mercy he extends. It's found in Luke chapter 23. When they came to the place called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the place of the skull. This is a place of death. It is a place of horror. It is a place of execution. And it is a place of excruciating, horrific sounds. This is where you would hear the screams and the moans of dying men. Their lips filled with hate-filled vulgarities, screaming at their executioners and spitting at their executioners. And, And the cries and the weeping of stop the pain. That is what you would hear from this place. But yet in in this desert of death blooms these words of rarest beauty. Words that have never and have never been spoken at the place of the skull before. Father, forgive them. As Jesus appeals to the Father, he's forever close to the Father, even in agony. He, 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 He is never losing sight of heaven no matter the pain he experiences. May we never lose sight of our Father, no matter what we face in this life. May you never lose sight of heaven, no matter what pain or suffering you go through in this life. Father, and then he says, forgive them. Not kill them, not take revenge on them, not show no mercy, not wipe them out. Rather, Jesus calls for mercy. Father, forgive them. I learned that the closer I am to the Father, the sooner I'll be able to forgive like the Son. The closer you are to the Father 
the sooner you will be able to forgive like his son. Forgive them. Forgive the the Jewish authorities and the Roman leaders and soldiers and the general public and those who falsely accused me and verbally abused me and physically assaulted and tortured and crucified me. He's praying for his enemies. I want you to understand that praying for our enemies is the best way to handle the pain caused by our enemies. Pray for those who have hurt you. Pray for those who have abused you. Pray for those who have treated you unfairly. Pray for them. What does this mean though? Father, forgive them. Does it mean that everybody's going to heaven? Does it mean everyone is immediately forgiven? No. Well, what he is doing is he is asking God to work in the hearts of men and he is praying for salvation and that is what we are called to do. And when Jesus prayed this way, he was fulfilling prophecy, scripture. Isaiah 53, 12, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He was practicing exactly what he preached and, and practicing exactly what he has told you and I to do. In Luke six twenty seven and 8, I say to you who who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Say it with me. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do you do that? Or do you disobey the commands of Scripture like we often do? Who is the person who has hurt you most in your life? Do you pray for them? That's what Jesus said to do. Who is the person that hurt you this past week? Do you pray for them? That is what Jesus said to do. So incredible. Jesus turns this place of execution and death into a place of prayer and forgiveness. And I am to do the same. And so are you. Turn your place of pain into a place of prayer. If your home has been a place of pain, start praying there. Your school has been a place of pain in your life start praying there the office where you work is so painful to go to work start praying there the neighborhood where you live you don't want to live in it's painful to be there start praying there turn your place of pain into a place of prayer and pray for those people and he recognizes their ignorance for they do not know what they are doing The Apostle Paul said similar things about himself in 1 Timothy 1. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown what? Mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So Jesus looks past their cruelty and sees their confusion and he looks past his own pain and his own suffering and he sees the souls of people. I got to get past myself and so do you. Stop, stop the pity of all the pain that we feel and stop the pity of all the suffering that we faced. Stop the pity of what those people did to us and start looking at their souls. Souls desperately confused. Souls desperately lost. Souls desperately deceived. Souls that are desperately in need of Jesus. I need to be less like me. 
And I need to be more like Jesus. Behold the mercy he extends. Behold the hope that he offers. This passage is found in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Amazingly, with his last dying breaths, this first criminal chooses to mock the Lord. The passage goes on. The other answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus responded, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Three men hanging on three crosses, a dialogue going between them. The first one, again, his last breaths using to mock the Lord. The second criminal, though, rebukes him, defends the Lord, and he believes in Jesus. And he asks something incredible of Jesus. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. He believes in the king. And he believes in the kingdom. And he comes to faith in the midst of his own execution, hanging on a cross, dying with who knows how much time is left in his life. There is such a thing as deathbed conversions, praise God. I wouldn't recommend you wait till then. You are not guaranteed your next breath. But he turns to the only one that can help him and the only one that can save him, to Jesus. And we're told in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must save. You cannot be saved outside of Jesus Christ. You will not go to heaven unless your faith is in Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning trusting in anything, anyone, including yourself to go to heaven, you are not going to heaven. Says who? Says Jesus. Says the authority of God's word. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It is Jesus and Jesus alone, for it is Jesus and Jesus alone who died for my sins and yours. He paid the penalty. This thief believes, and you hear these words of hope from the Lord. Truly I say to you, it is his promise. Jesus says, mark my words. You can count on this. It is as good as done. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Today you will be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Today you will enter into heaven and experience its fullness. Today is the day of salvation. That's 2 Corinthians 6. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. It is never too late to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus and let him save you. And everything can change today in your life. Today, let God change you. Today, let God save you. I want you to understand, this this paradise that was given to this man, he didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything for it. He is a criminal hanging on the cross. He didn't get down and get baptized. He didn't join a local assembly. In membership. He never gave a big financial gift to some ministry. 
It was his faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that saved him. Tuesday night, I was on visitation. And I went to the home of a man in Yorkville. He's 81 years old. And he's on hospice, lying on a hospital bed in his own bedroom. He doesn't have much time. He's weak, recently suffered a stroke, and he's soon going to die. He can't move. He can't feed himself. He can't come to church. He can barely talk. He has nothing to offer God, but God offers everything to him. And with his wife and his daughter by his side, he mouthed those words of trusting Jesus as his savior. God saves people. He saves. He saves us when we have nothing to give to him. We cannot earn his favor. It is his gift to us. And if you're here this morning without Jesus, you need to understand there is nothing you can do to go to heaven. You must place your faith fully in Jesus to get you there. Trust him. Behold the mercy he extends and the hope he offers. I want you to see the glory of our Savior. Behold the care he displays. John 19 is the passage, starting in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, uh, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, the scene is sickening. You have soldiers who just pounded nails through the flesh of three men, two of which are probably groaning and moaning as they die. You have mockers that are standing there mocking Jesus and, and, and staring at his mostly naked body and the bodies of these men They're covered with sweat. They're covered with blood. They're covered with their own excrement. You can't get off the cross and go to the bathroom. Their clothes have been stripped off of them, stolen by these soldiers, and they gamble for the tunic of a homeless man. Jesus is a homeless man. Do not forget that. And they gamble for it right below him as he hangs on the cross. And two very special people are standing within earshot of Jesus, outside of the others. There is Mary, his mother, who 33 years earlier received that angelic announcement, you're going to have a baby boy. And now she stares at her son, her savior. She watches him suffer, witnessing the torment, the pain, and soon to hear his cries from the cross. 
Simeon's prophecy has been fulfilled in her life. In Luke 2, Simeon said to Mary, his mother, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. For you who have lost children, you know the pierce of your soul. You know the agony and the heartache and how hard it is to lose a child. You've never lost a child like this. Mary is facing something none of us have ever faced. Not only is Mary there, John is there, the disciple of Jesus. He's called the beloved one. He was the one called from the shores of Galilee, belonging to the inner circle of Jesus, Jesus' followers. And then you hear these words, and you see Jesus' thoughts are of Mary and of John. And in the midst of his own pain and agony, Jesus is thinking of others. And in the midst of everything, the torture, the abuse, everything that's going on in his life, the pain, he is caring for other people. I want you to understand, life does not revolve around me even in the midst of my pain. Life does not revolve around you even in the midst of your pain. I need to learn to think of others even when I am hurting. I need to care for others even when I am being unfairly treated. I need to be more like Jesus and less like me. To Mary, he says, woman, behold your son. He's assuring her, do not worry, you will be provided for. And more than likely, she is a widow at this time. And the fears and the concerns of widows are real. As they age, they wonder, what is going to become of me? And who is going to take care of me? And how am I going to make it in this life? And Jesus is a good son. And Jesus is a good savior. I want to encourage you to be good sons. And good daughters. And take care of your family members. Don't be selfish. Even when you are facing pain. To Mary, you will be taken care of. To John, you will take care of Mary. And notice a couple things here. Behold your mother. John is not related to her. And to me, he teaches there are times to care for people who are not blood relatives. Jesus has half-brothers and half-sisters. Why aren't they involved? We don't know. But we know the responsibility is given to John. The other thing that I really learn here is that life isn't over just because someone's life is over. Life isn't over just because someone's life is over. Jesus' life is about to be over. Yet John will still have work to do and ministry to accomplish. Life isn't over just because a loved one has died. Your life doesn't end when someone else's life ends. There is still work left to do for the kingdom. There are still people to care for. And John would take these words to heart. For we read from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Behold the mercy he extends and the hope that he offers and the care he displays and behold the sorrow he feels as we come to this fourth saying on the cross. It's found in Matthew 27, verse 45. 
Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lema subakthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is dark. It is three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. This is 12 noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. Darkness descends. It's as if God dims the lights. He just turns the lights all the way down on the greatest atrocity ever committed by humanity. He just turns the lights off on this act of divine judgment upon his own son for the sins of the world. And then we have this lonely cry heard from the lips of the son of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Chilling words of complete abandonment. As Jesus quotes the first two verses of Psalm 22. What does this mean? Has Jesus lost his faith? What does this mean? Has he ceased to be God? This is a cry of distress, not distrust. This is a cry of pain and agony, the pain and agony of separation. See, there are times when you and I have felt abandoned by God, and we never were, and we never have been. Jesus felt abandoned by the Father, and He was. He was. This is the first and only time in all of eternity that a separation takes place within the eternal bonds of the triune God. First and only time. It is the first and only time that Jesus didn't refer to God as his father. First and only time. John MacArthur said he writhed in anguish not from the lacerations on his back or the thorns that pierced his head or the nails that held him to the cross but for the incomparably painful loss of fellowship with his father. Why? Why the separation? Because the father in utter holy, holy, holiness can't look upon his son in utter sinfulness. God turned his face away from his son because God must turn his face away from my sin. And your sin. And all of our sin was placed on the Savior at that moment. That's how disgusting my sin is to a holy God. That is how disgusting your sin is to a holy God. He cannot even look upon it. He must judge it. That's why there's separation. On the, G, on the cross, Jesus was covered with my sin and yours. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. First Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. I want us to comprehend as best we can the utter disgust of our sin to a holy God. Please turn from your sin. Stop playing with sin. Stop living in sin. 
Stop making excuses for your sin. Stop flirting with sin. You disgust your holy God. That's why our Savior was crucified. Because of my sin. Because of your sin. Turn from it. Turn from it. It is reprehensible to God. May you walk out of this place so much more holy than you have been. Because you understand the depth of disgust of a holy God for sin. Mercy he extends, the hope he offers, the care he displays, the sorrow he feels. Behold the suffering he experiences. Also in John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, say it with me, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. It says, knowing all these things had been accomplished to fulfill scripture. So Jesus knows the work is done. Jesus knows the prophecies have been fulfilled. But notice the priorities in Jesus' life. The spiritual comes first. The physical comes last. Spiritual is first. Physical is last. We get it backwards in our lives. We think we got to take care of us and we got to take care of this and we got. Where's the spiritual? Where is my time with God? Where is my time prioritizing serving Him? Where is my time prioritizing my spiritual gifts for the glory of God? We get it backwards. We see that this is not the first time in Jesus' life. We learn when he's talking to the disciples after talking to the woman at the well. And they come back urging him, Rabbi, eat. Did anybody give him anything to eat? And in verse 34 of John 4, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Serving God is so much more important than lunch after church. Do not let the groans in your stomach dictate how you live your life. You make sure God comes first. You make sure the spiritual is the priority in your life and mine. The fulfillment of scripture is the priority and it should be in my life as well. Not that you and I will fulfill any prophecies, but there are plenty of commands and exhortations that I and you are supposed to fulfill. So make God's word and God's will the priority in your life. Not the physical desires of our bodies. But God, thy will be done. God, what is your will in my life? God, what does your word have to say? God, where do you want me to be? How do you want me to serve you and the kingdom? It is the spiritual first, not the physical. The work is accomplished, the prophecy is fulfilled, and his body is hurting. It's depleted, it's dehydrated. And he says, I am thirsty. 
He's turned down previous drink that has been offered. We see in Matthew 27, they gave him wine to mix uh, to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling. And in Mark 15, the same thing. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. He did not take it. Why? He refused anything that would kill the pain. He wouldn't take any narcotics. He wouldn't take anything fermented or, or drugged. He would feel, fully feel the weight of the sins of dying for them for the world. I am thirsty. What we learn is that Jesus had a real body. He felt real pain. I am thirsty. Yes, he is fully God, holy and without sin, but he is fully human. He, he suffered physically, and part of the suffering was this intense thirst on the cross for hours, and his throat burning, longing for just a drop, something. We have never known thirst like this. Lips and mouth and throat so dry, desperate for a single drop of water, complete anguish. Again, the fulfillment of prophecy of Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. But he would taste some relief. As again in John 19, 29. They would bring that sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop to his mouth. If you have ever gone to a hospital or visited hospice. They'll have that swab with a little cup, it's a sponge on a stick, just to wet the lips, to wet the inside of the mouth, just to bring some relief. Behold the suffering he experiences. Behold the victory he secures. John 19. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Say it with me. It is is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit it is finished if you've ever run a race 5k half marathon 100 mile trail run probably you haven't done that okay if you've ever run any kind of race and you have left it all on the course i mean you have left it all you are completely spent there is no sight like the finish line. There's no sight like the finish line. No one ever ran a race like Jesus. Pouring out his life for 33 years. Culminating at the cross. Crossing the line. Victory secured for you and for me. It is finished. It is the word testelestai. I love what's Charles Spurgeon said of this word. Oh, I wish I could have heard this guy preach. Just listen to this. An ocean of meaning and a drop of language, a mere drop, would need all the other words that ever were spoken or ever could, ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. It cannot, I cannot attain to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. The fire has passed upon the lamb. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due to his people. This is the royal dish of the feast of love. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. The debt of sin has been paid in full. 
It is finished. My salvation has been purchased. Your salvation has been purchased. It is finished. Satan has no claim on me. Satan has no claim on you. You belong to God. You belong to heaven. You belong to eternity. It is finished. You're saved. You're secure. It is finished. And Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. Why? Because it is finished. The suffering can cease. The pain can pass. It is finished. And he gives up his spirit. His life was not taken from him. He freely lays it down. John 10. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. There is one last sentence, one last saying that Jesus says. Behold the trust he demonstrates. It's found in Luke chapter 23. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. With one final ounce of strength, he cries out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Notice he uses the word Father. The first words on the cross were Father. It began with Father. Father, forgive them. The last words on the cross end with Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The same Father who has turned his face away, the same Father who has forsaken him, is the same Father he commits his spirit to. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We can trust the Father no matter the pain and sorrow we face. We can trust the Father when we come to the end of our life. We can trust the Father when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We need not fear any evil for our God is with us and he will comfort us. We can trust the Father because we will be dwelling in his house forever and ever and ever. Friends, this is the way to die. Trusting yourself into the hands of the Father. And may our final breath be a breath of complete trust and complete faith into the hands of our Father. Behold the man. Behold the mercy he extends, the hope he offers, the care he displays, the sorrow he feels, the suffering he experiences, the victory he secures, and the trust he demonstrates. Behold the man. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit at harvest.church.